Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to this week's podcast with me, Sheridan Lucas, WO1 Leadership at the Centre for Army Leadership. In this special Anzac Day episode, we are honoured to be joined by the Army Sergeant Majors of the New Zealand and the Australian Army, Warrant Officer Class 1 Moffat and Warrant Officer Class 1 McFarlane. Both Army Sergeant Majors have over 70 years of service and leadership experience between them and they have risen through the ranks to be senior soldiers in their own armies. WO1 Moffat's background transcends the land and joint domains with service in the 1st Battalion, Royal New Zealand Infantry Regiment, followed by a 20-year career in New Zealand Special Air Service, becoming the 16th Sergeant Major of the New Zealand Army on the 31st of March 2020. His Australian counterpart, WO1 McFarlane, an infantryman by trade, spent the majority of his career with 3rd Battalion, the Royal Australian Regiment, having deployed on countless operations, which have included deployments to Malaysia, East Timor and Afghanistan. And he has held the Regimental Sergeant Major appointments with 3rd Brigade and 2nd Division, and now the Australian Army. Sirs, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on today's podcast. As we were discussing before the recording started, Anzac Day is such a special day for all of us. And I think in a small way, it's very fitting to rebuke for us to come together and talk today. Look, I know you're both very busy men, so we'll dive straight in. Okay, so you've both served in every leadership position as enlisted soldiers. How has your leadership changed or developed? Well, as I was reflecting on the question uh, this morning, I sort of shudder to think the, the leader I was. Um, but at the same sense, uh, I'm not embarrassed in any way of the way I led when I was younger. I, I would simply say that um, when you're a bit younger in rank, uh, you tend to be uh, the professional that the force needs you to be and the teams need you to be. So in that sense, you know, you run and gun. Uh, you shoot and move uh, in a way that inspires your teams and regardless of your trade and your core and specialty. And I just think that uh, as you get a bit older, you tend to understand yourself a lot better and you tend to be leader that you wanted to be uh, versus the one you were. So, yeah, that's me for a start. Hey, uh, it, it is a really good question and it, it, it makes you reflect on uh, who you are who you are as a leader now and where you've come from. And for me, it's, I think um, you grow up in an environment um, and you see what role models are and what role, role models aren't uh, and you and you learn and you develop and I think that's the most important part if I if I'm really serious about myself I'm uh, I was young brash and impatient I had to be the best shot had to be the fastest uh, and my and my team had to be to be that too um, and then as you as you move through your career and you do your promotion courses and that sort of stuff, and you see how other people operate themselves. You really, really evaluate. And I think for me, as we've developed our leadership um, packages in the Australian Arm anyway, one thing that we really focus on now is ref reflective uh, practice and making sure that we understand those decisions that we make and the impact that they have. Um, and I think that has certainly made me a, a, a better leader, but also finding those role models. Uh, since I was a sergeant, I've still got the, uh, the same, same role model and, uh, and uh, mentor that I, that I had on my, on my journey. And it's been a journey. And I think that's what, you know, we, this is why we do our job is to be better people and make sure the people around us uh, are better people every day also. 
That's perfect answer. And I think it's really key that you pulled out the reflection there. I certainly know now that I, I try to reflect a lot more as I go through my leadership positions. It's really good that you, you put that out. So thank you very much. Uh, with that being said, what has been your greatest leadership challenge and lesson? Yeah, I'll lead out again. Um, I think Grant said it really well there about the way you reflect on the way you were and the way you wished you could be. And so the personal challenge for me as a leader is like understanding uh, the difference between what I thought I needed to be as a leader um, and to be that inspiring person to the one you really are. And so I think it's this, um, maybe it's this challenge or the tension between uh, the concept of identity and reputation, especially if you're led and grown and framed um, by leaders of your past that taught you that strong, especially male leadership was done in a certain way, uh, you try to emulate that. And of course, as we grow older, as we learn more about ourselves and our behaviors, you think, well, first of all, that's not the sort of leader I am. Um, and you find out you have something quite, quite separate to that. And for me, the, the challenge was identifying that and knowing that I wasn't this brash sort of leader that was largely a front. And what I found out later was um, I'm much more cooperative. I'm much more of a stability type leader who encourages, um, who refines, who uses and enables people based on their, their own motivations. So yeah, that, that was my biggest challenge and it came quite late in my career. I sort of wish that we had done more self-awareness uh, when we were a bit younger, but never mind, uh, that's, that's the journey. I think uh, for me, and I, I won't single out one single thing because you know I, I've, I've learned Lots of different things over the years, you know, as a platoon sergeant with a platoon commander, whether it was a, uh, a CSM with an OC or as a unit RSM, there's been different things that I've dealt with differently. But I think, and I've learned many lessons over it, but I think um, what the biggest thing for me is uh, leaders need to own the problem. Leaders need to listen, actually, also, um, and and watch what's going on in their in their environment. You need to take action, and you need to follow that action through. Reporting something um, that's all well and good, but if there's no action being taken about it, then you've got to make sure that that it has been taken. Um, and if it's not, then you need to find another way to to get that action followed up. Because this is how we gain the trust of our of our people. It's how we gain the trust of our, our communities and our and our societies. Because without trust and support um, and respect, um, we're going to find it really difficult um, to recruit people, to hold people. Um, so I think once again, there are all those things that we I've, I've come to understand. Um, and really reinforce those things at every opportunity as the, uh, as the wise old heads now um, in our organisations to, you don't want to be able to put your head on someone else's shoulders because they, they won't learn. But, you know, the, being able to do these things is really, really important and, and sharing them a, a, across our uh, nations is even more important. If I was to add something, you know, versus a personal challenge and lesson, uh, I think Grant spoke really well to, you know, that awareness. I think rather than a personal instance that we talked about before with me finding, you know, who are you as a leader? I often found um, that leadership's just not one dimensional. I think when we come into the army, especially and land, 
you tend to find it's an order is decreed and people follow. But the challenge, I think, that's at the depth of your question is understanding that there is multiple types of leadership. There are hundreds of approaches. And that, to me, really underlines the real challenge of leadership. I guess it's why it's the most studied of our disciplines, right? And the lesson in that becomes, like, how much can you learn about behavior? How much can you learn about the impact and influence the positive and negative that we put on our soldiers and officers? So, yeah, if I were to answer that question in a different way, the most influential challenge for me in Army leadership has been how we lead and the way we lead with different people. So just a bit of an ad addition on there. No, absolutely. And, and as you pointed out, it's we're always learning which is great to see that, you know, everybody has that outlook that we're always learning with it going forward on the lessons. Would you say that the lessons that you've highlighted there has shaped your leadership philosophy? And would you be able to summarise your own leadership philosophy? I think for me, knowing who I am, uh, what my strengths and weaknesses are, a young me, I had many, many strengths, if you ask me, uh, I probably didn't have as many strengths as I did, but really understanding who you are as an individual and as a leader, uh, understanding your people um, and their, their needs and wants, um, but being able to listen and contribute in a meaningful way at the right point of right point of time to have impact is really important. But also I think um, for our soldiers and junior NCOs and our uh, warrant officers is to understand that we're advisors to our commanders on decision-making process. And I so also think, you know, what I really come to understand is that power doesn't sit with our chiefs and influence. It sits down with our junior leaders. So they need to be understood, managed, and I think... Trying to get that through to our soldiers is, and our junior leaders is really important because we expect a lot of them, but at the same time, they need to stump up and step up where, where it's required. And that is about all about having credibility. And I'll come back to it again, trust and respect. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you just said there with the, when you were younger, you would have thought that you had a lot more strengths than what you you, you actually probably did. Do you think we invest that correctly then with the junior NCOs as we're saying that that's where the real leadership is, but then that sometimes we're not in the right position ourselves with understanding our strengths? I think we are. We're, we're getting better. I think, you know, we um, um, do strength, working out what people's strengths and that sort of stuff are and who they are as a leader and that sort of stuff. You know, you a blue, red, yellow, or a green colour and those sort of things. So I think we're re we are, for Australian Army anyway, we are really investing in our Centre for Army Leadership and making sure that we're giving our people the best opportunities to um, be the best leaders we can. And and we, we pinch stuff all over the country and all over the world to make sure that, and, and that's what we should do because it's about our people and being the best people they can be. Perfect. So would you agree uh, that knowledge is power within that? Knowledge is power, but knowledge is knowledge is also influence. Yeah, if I was answering the same question, that core question about like trying to summarise your own leadership, um, oh, a tricky question, right? How many times do we think about our own philosophy? Um, we have a saying in New Zealand that it's not for the sweet Kumara to say that he's sweet. Um, so I'll be careful with my answer. But um, look, I... I would summarize my leadership as, as what I call cultural leader and uh, the way I try to 
you know, articulate that as I just try and find the good in every person, regardless of their rank and their age and their experience. And then just through that, you try and, you know, cultivate their self-motivation, uh, their agency, their skills and attributes to best get after what the army needs them to be. Um, so it's highly empathetic. You know, it's probably a little bit softer than I was when I was younger. But going back to conversations about all these different modes of leadership, you really have to do that now. Uh, it's not static. Leadership is dynamic. And sometimes it's a paradox to itself. You, what works on one will completely not work on another. Um, yeah, so my personal you know, description is culture leader. Understand what drives that person from, from a values point of view and then let them, let them go. That's really good. And do you think you've had to change that outlook with different generations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll kick off on this one, Grant, but we talk about this often on our monthly catch-ups, you know, and it's not a blame assignment of a new generation um, saying that they're any less because the fact is us five, we, we agree that they're better than us. Um, the trick is understanding and identifying the changes and where a new generation um, is better uh, rather than looking for the negative or the hollow. So, yeah, I've absolutely had to adapt, understand that they're more information-based, um, that they're solutions-focused, um, that they're about action, not words. Whereas I think, and I won't speak for Grant personally, but I think we could take an order in the old days and we'd never question. You know, we were through and through soldiers receive. We are subordinate. And until I'm in that position, I'm going to follow um, the Queen's order, <laughs> right or wrong. Um, but I think in the information age, uh, they have the solutions, they have the information at hand, and therefore they become more demanding of more approaches, of more options. Um, so, yeah, I've had to adapt in short. All our generations have changed. Um, no doubt when we were young soldiers, you know, for the Australians, the Vietnam veterans probably seen us as a, as little upstarts and, and you know, put your feet together and get on with the job. So it's just understanding what our generations and the strengths and the strengths that they bring, um, and that they're more they probably are more inquisitive because they have more data and they have more things at their fingertips than we ever did. And we've got to see that that's a great strength, and how you harness it and move it forward is what's really really crucial um, for them to uh, be successful leaders. That's perfect. That leads me on nicely to the next question. So why is personal and professional leadership development so important in the Army? I think this talks about almost hand in hand with what we've spoken about just previously. You know, I think the personal part is about developing self. Um, you know, we use a saying in the New Zealand Army, be a good person first. You'll be a great soldier uh, in time. And so I think the personal development is about that individual capacity to understand yourself, uh, you know, where your strengths and attributes lie at times, where are your, where are your gaps, uh, where are your work-ons? Whereas that professional uh, development, especially in leadership, understands where and what you have to do as a function of leadership, um, really taken into the depth of that command or leadership responsibility uh, on the battlefield. You know, and that's largely about influence. Uh, and at other times, it's just purely direction. And I think we need a good combination of both. Hey, I, I agree. And the only other thing I would uh, add to that is how do you instill in our junior leaders, our younger people are risk, risk takers. 
um, probably bigger risk takers than what we were. So how do you get them to understand risk and how do you then make sure that they, um, and we'll probably talk about this later, um, free to challenge and push that risk boundary as far as they can, understanding that they will, they will make mistakes and that's okay. How you deal with that mistake is what's going to be really important as we uh, keep them enthusiastic about serving and enthusiastic about being leaders, enthusiastic about keeping contributing and taking those uh, career steps and milestones. That's perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we'll definitely cover this a little bit more later on uh, in our conversation because I think it is really about that challenge culture and making sure there is a safe space. So, yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much for bringing that one up. And bringing on to the next question then. In the UK, are three single services can appear quite separate. In New Zealand, you are packaged as the New Zealand Defence Force, a centralised command with the slogan, three services, one force. Is there a large amount of interoperability between the Army, Navy, and Air Force? What are the benefits of working like this? Yeah, that's a great question. Really glad you focused it towards us. Look, I think it's a great slogan, and we do live by this. Um, but I tend to be quite an honest broker when I say I don't think we do it more than anyone else, but I do like the way we package it. And uh, there's a saying in Māori them, um, about the Māori weapon called the patu, right? It's got three edges, three blades. Uh, and in the hand of, of a good warrior, you can use all three blades quite separately. You can thrust it, you can slash with it, and you can block with it. And I think it's a nice analogy to the way the New Zealand Defence Force uses that domain excellence. You know, we have to be good in the water and in the, in the sea and in the land and in the air. Um, but ultimately, the force has got to wield that. And, uh, you know, we, as a small force, you become the niche and the needed. Uh, you must do what your public demands and you've got to do what only you do best. And I think that scale, that opportunity for the New Zealand Defence Force is that we're able to connect and mesh much tighter than large armies. Our population base, our relative density of our small country, right down in the bottom of the earth near the Antarctic, um, it almost forces this cohesiveness. And so, yeah, we tend to work uh, together maybe the same amount as the other five eyes but i think we do it in a different way we're just that much closer uh, we grow together and you get just get these long-term relationships that start at the junior ceo level uh, through cross-coursing through exercising an activity uh, through fun activities and adventures and then you know that matures so yeah we're really lucky uh, and i think it's a great slogan yeah, it comes across as a really powerful one. So thank you. Um, next question. And one of the longest running defence arrangements in the world is the five power of defence arrangement between the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia and Singapore, conducting regular military exercises since 1981 to enhance interoperability and promote stability and security in this region. With that in mind, what does the New Zealand and Australian Army do differently in relationship to leadership and culture? That's a great question. And I think um, for Australia and New Zealand, we in, uh, in, in the British, we, we, our history goes back a really long way um, and, and working together. But I think it's about building close relationships and partnerships um, with our regional partners, understanding culture, understanding the strengths and weaknesses of those people that we're going to work with, 
put aside what's happening uh, in Europe at the moment, for Australia, for Australia, our um, center of gravity at the moment is working with our in the Pacific and the Indo-Pacific and building those relationships, um, and that is foundation skills for our junior leaders. Um, and as we build more relationships with um, other countries, it's really important that and I'll come back to it again. Is is really understanding that culture and and the Maoris and the New Zealanders certainly lead the world in that. So we learn lots off them. But it's I think that's what brings us together. Um, and being able to um, work closely, run courses together uh, in the region, that sort of stuff is sort of makes makes us a bit unique down here, as uh, Moo said, down the uh, the bottom of the down the bottom of the world. Yeah. Hey, look, it's a, it's a really uh, interesting question uh, in context um, to try and understand culture and leadership in a different way. But look, I, I would start out by saying that um, that whole FPDA cohort has been around for some time, as you say, uh, one of the longest serving uh, cooperatives. And we've all been part of this since the beginning, having served and lived in that region uh, myself, sort of growing up for a short period of time up there. Maybe over 75 years, our nations have tried to forge cooperation and peace there or sustaining peace. But in terms of the question of culture and leadership, um, let me touch on those two. I think culture for New Zealand, uh, like all of our nations, we tend to find out what our traditions and histories are. And for New Zealanders, it, it is largely uh, this mix or this blend between our native Māori heritage, right? Māori warriors, natives of the land, uh, and our strong British professional backing. And when you merge the two, you get something quite different um, to someone else. And so because that's so strong, because we are of the region, because we are almost Indigenous, that translates in a way that I can't quite express in this cast, but we have this, this empathy, this, um, this way with people, um, you know, call it cross-cultural uh, communication, where you can almost... Uh, you can connect with them much quicker than sometimes a large superpower can just by scale and size uh, and tradition. The second point to, to leading, um, you know, it's all in your frameworks, right, about what you value. And both Grant and I have talked about values base. You know, where does your ethos sit? And I tend to find even with a cursory check of all our countries, you know, we're very aligned, even with those Southeast Asian countries in Malaysia and Singapore. Um, so together, when you have that shared value um, of prosperity, of security in the region, and you're of that region, you know, your leadership at every level, as we spoke about before, tends to have a connector uh, across the Southeast Asian region, and that helps hugely. Um, my general knows his counterparts, as does Grant's. Um, that person-to-person -person relationship is, is not about um, your institute. It's not about a national uh, flag. It's, it's, a person, it's a personal relationship. Um, and those two connect, connected together, leadership and culture, uh, is what essentially sort of drives that forward. So, yeah, that's, that's my answer. I just think being part of this region, um, being there from the start, uh, especially in New Zealand, not as a conqueror, not as you know, a sovereignty of that area. You, we always went there to help. Uh, we went to the Milan conflict in, in, in the early 50s to help uh, to remove that confrontation. Uh, same in Borneo, and then to bring together those those nations. So, yeah, it's nice to be still part of that and, and exercise up there annually. 
it's really good and it's it's nice to see that when you do talk about the culture how your emotions come into it and you can say you know about all the past and that you can relate so th- thanks very much for taking that a little bit more personal as well it's really good thank you so the next question then i'm just going to move on to the values and standards uh, the british army provides the principal framework for all of our officers and soldiers uh, setting what is expected from them and how they are judged in australia your approach to the values and standards is slightly different through the australian army code and uh, the contract to australia which reads as, I'm an Australian soldier who is an expert in close combat. I am physically and mentally tough, compassionate and courageous. I lead by example. I strive to take the initiative. I am committed to learning and working for the team. I believe in trust, loyalty and respect for my country, my mates and the army. The rising sun is the badge of honor. I am an Australian soldier always. Is this contract aspirational or is it expected for every member of the Australian Army? It's both. But I suppose what um, that is but a small part, but an important part. And I think, um, you know, our banner is good soldiering. Um, and under that is culture, leadership and accountability. But it's about being a good person, being of good character and knowing r- right and wrong which is underpinned by our ADF values. And we all have the same same values across our, our service now and our behaviours. But for the Army, it is about good soldiering and the contract is one small part that uh, the day you join our Army, I think it is the third day you learn that. And um, I would hope that we live and breathe that every day. Um, and if you know that off by heart, that, that is good. But know what is required of you is even more important. It's safe for them to know it uh, every single day. Do you believe that that's, and, and if so, how do you make it so that it's habitual between both in and out of uniform? Through um, our junior leaders reinforcing that, in this case at Kapurka, um, through their initial employment training, ab initio training um, on their promotion courses um, and our our people um, holding others to account. So when they do see um, Grant McFarlane out on town on a Friday night doing the wrong thing, that Mr. Smith is going to grab him by the or Corporal Smith's going to grab him by the ear and say, "Hey, mate, you're doing the wrong thing. Get in a taxi, or and or take him home." I know hope's not a method, but I think uh, I'm confident that the majority of our people um, will always do the right thing, but it's about holding people to account. Yeah, I find that really refreshing. Uh, That's exactly the same as uh, we like to look at it from the British British Army. Uh, We certainly like to make sure it's incorporated in all of their training that they're doing, but almost like it becomes a natural thing for them to carry out every day to live by the values and standards and i think that listening to what you're just saying there we're singing off the same song sheet you know we we hope that we give them the foundations um and they live by it because they want to live by it but i think and you're right and i did you know i fully support what you said but it's about those around them making sure that they um, when they do transgress that someone has the moral courage to to call that out 
So how important is creating a climate of psychological safety where it's acceptable to make mistakes? Uh, and can you talk from any personal experience? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll pick this one up and I'll be honest with you, Sheridan. It's, I had heard the term, but I didn't really understand it fully. You know, I had to look, about, look at this a couple of weeks ago. Um, but look, if I approached it in a, a much more maybe simplistic or, or straightforward approach, I, I think it's largely about empathy and communication and trust at team level. Yeah, absolutely. First, I think it's really important to create that environment to cultivate uh, the ability for small teams, especially high-performing ones, to operate uh, well. And the only way you can do that is to be safe and to be functional. Uh, and I can talk from, from my experience as a young soldier, even as a young cadet, uh, I joined the army at 16 and a half. Um, and I mean, you, you're certainly not an adult by 22 and at 16 and a half, I was a long way from it. Um, well, what's my point is when you come into an army of regular force, um, largely males uh, who lead without that empathy, uh, it's very quickly diminishes your imagination and your innovation, uh, your ability to ask tough questions um, to seek a mentor. So yeah, it, it can be damaging if, if it's not there um, and you don't learn the good lessons early. Uh, and instead what you do is you, you manufacture a shield to deal with it. Um, and I think onwards into your career, you tend to manifest that against the people you lead. You, you don't become that caring person. You don't show the compassion required at the section and platoon and company level. And, and that can be devastating uh, to a team that has to work together. So uh, in short, you know, that's, that's my experience. I certainly had plenty of uh, examples of both types, right, where that climate was built and it was safe. And I could see examples that weren't. And the high developing team, the high learning outcome was definitely of the team that had greater culture, who had greater psychological and physical safety, without doubt. And it sort of goes back to my leadership culture, right? My personal one is that um, you have to see the good in everyone. Uh, you have to allow them to say their piece and learn when it's the right time to learn. And when it's time for business, there's, there's often less questions and less time. But because you've already talked it out and you've already learned, I just find the smaller teams, they tend to work much better together when they're safe. Psychological safety is you know, really, really important. And whether that's physical safety in the workplace um, or um, mentally being able to have a say in those sort of things, things are really, really important. And we need to make sure our environment is set up for that, that um, people have empathy, as uh, Moo said. We can be trusted as an organisation when um, people need assistance, that we, we reach out and give that to them. Um, we, we, re we respect each other as individuals and what we bring to the team, um, our strengths and weaknesses. But it's, it is, it's about people understanding people, uh, of being of good character and having high-functioning teams that get it is what we're all about. And being able to make mistakes as an individual or as a team is really fundamental to building that trust uh, and and respect. Where you do make a mistake, report it, own it, learn from it. And for leaders to acknowledge that, hey, people make mistakes, encourage them to get back on the horse or the bike or back on the range or whatever it might be. Um, but we all own it. 
um, the person made made the mistake, and the supervisor and the and the and the leaders uh, to come together and make sure that we are all rowing in the same direction that uh, our people feel safe when they come to work, whatever it is, uh, and know that they won't be judged um, for whatever that that issue might be or the mistake that they make. Really, really important that the first step is an individual that you own the mistake that you made. We we all move on. And hopefully we all learn um, from what Grant McFarlane did um, so that um, nobody else does makes that same mistake. Or if they do make a mistake, that they know that I'll be supported, which is even even more important. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, and I think our leadership schools, our centres for uh, applied leadership in this case, there are so many models out there now. And when you start introducing things like the trust model, and you introduce it at a young level, right? I think my privates are getting it at ab initio training, certainly by junior NCO um, through their experiential leadership. They understand what predictability and leadership means. They understand competence. They understand uh, all those four pillars. So well, I suppose my point is you can't get away with it anymore. You know, at the section and the platoon and the company level, those bricks that make up our armies, they're aware of these models. They're aware of what is right. And so it's much harder for those people who work against them. Um, I, I tend to find that they flag themselves, right? If you're not being open, if you're not open to challenge and betterment, um, that's very different from disobedience. Um, these, these soldiers know what's going on and it just, I think it emulates, right? It's a force multiplier. Look, it can be very hard to manage too. It's a hard thing to lead very, very smart soldiers sometimes um, because they all know better. But this is the good stuff. This is what makes good people. Yeah, absolutely. And you just mentioned challenge, uh, which brings me on to the next question. What do you think the benefits are of creating a healthy challenge culture? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll kick off. Um, yeah, another really good question. Uh, really makes you think. Challenge culture for me, the, the biggest benefit is you get to see things from a different perspective. I think it opens up your junior ranks, especially and junior officers to challenge the status quo. You know, I, I liken it to crews or small teams with that ability to work in small groups, question the status, and then find a better solution. If that's done as a nucleus, then the solution's got to be better, <laughs> provided that it's, um, it is solution-focused. Uh, I've been stood on the mat many a times, and you think at SMA, as a senior soldier of your army, you're not. You're almost bulletproof. Well, you and I and Grant know the opposite, right? Uh, my soldiers have no problem in raising tough, challenging issues facing this domain and this force in 2022. So I'm not uh, deluded in any way thinking there's not a challenge culture in my army. The trick I say to the soldiers uh, and to our people is that you've got to come with a mindset to be solution focused, right? All, all the moaning in the world of our armies over the years, they used to say that moaning was this sort of right of a soldier. Now I tend to say to soldiers, if you're going to challenge, be the first generation that comes to it with a solution, right? That's your responsibility now as information-based soldiers. You know everything. Well, you know just about as much as I do. And therefore, you have no excuse for naivety uh, or a lack of data to provide a solution. So, yep, challenge culture, very, very good, done in the right way. True. Hey, um, you're right. And I think trying to get our soldiers and our junior leaders to understand what that challenge culture is, is really, really important and how you go about it. 
and it's done respectfully. Uh, it's done um, with the understanding of why we've done something, how we've done it, and if we can do it better, what is your what is your solution? And I and I and I really um, genuinely believe that our our junior leaders and our senior NCOs are that focused now. They actually do challenge it, but they do go and understand and find the data or the the reasons why and how um, and how they can contribute in a, in a or how we can do things better and contri contribute is really really. Uh, important, and I think we get it, um, and we should see it as healthy. We we shouldn't see it as uh, as senior leaders as um, insubordinate, cheeky young soldiers. We should see it as a uh, a way of making sure that our people are being part of the solution because our armies are changing. You know, I've been in, around a long time, but. In my last four years in the Australian Army, we have had significant change, and it's been part of that has been because our soldiers are part of of the conversation and, and the solution. So, you know, and when I finish here, I'm getting in a car and going down to the home of the soldiers at One RTB, and I'm looking forward to those conversations with our new generation and our recruit instructors. That is what keeps me ticking because it's our people that want to want to come up and talk to the RSM of the army, not run away and hide behind the door. Um, and I think that is, it tells us that we've got a pretty good workforce. Yeah, I think what's really great there is that you both uh, spoke about how offering a solution up to everything that they challenge. And I think that's key, not only for them to offer up the solution, but it also makes us see the bigger picture to their thoughts, feelings, makes it a little bit more inclusive uh, and can only make a team better if we're all singing off the same the same sheet uh, and we're all looking at it from different angles and offering our advice. So it's really good to see that you both put that in there. Thank you. Moving on to the next question then. So hierarchy uh, has an obvious role within the profession of arms, not least defining clear lines of authority, responsibility and accountability, but hierarchy can breed negative leadership attitudes and behaviours. How prevalent of a problem is this in your respective armies and what can be done or is being done, done about this? Yeah, another great question, Sheridan. Uh, it's a challenging one, right? It's uh, it's exposing and it's vulnerable to talk about your army in any way when you think that hierarchy can breed negative uh, behaviour. But it, it's a truism, right? It's it's a question because it occurs. In terms of the qualitative part of it, and, and the you know, does it occur a lot in my army? I would have to say no. Um, I would say that we've got a great culture, but every now and then you're affected by you know, climatic dips, small parts of your organisation, small threads of individuals that sit within your family or your whānau, as we say in New Zealand, that go against your ethos. And some of that resides in leadership because of a, their inability to be inclusive, to not diversify in the right time, or just fear, fear of irrelevance, I think, in many times. So, no, I don't think it's a major challenge. Is there a challenge? Uh, yes. And to the answer, to, to the point, I guess, is how do you fix it um, or how you get about that? To me, it's always about culture. Culture, culture, culture. It eats strategy for breakfast and all the plans in the world will not really push you towards better behaviour unless you deal with your core values 
um, your identity about what you do and who you are as a force, and then what you accept as minimum behaviors in your team. From that, you know, it's so much harder to um, perpetrate bad behavior. It's, it's easier for you to stand out if you're not part of that team. And I often call it, and I'm not apologetic, I viral out the bad in many cases. I will viral out that small percentage in order to protect the wider hapu, our family in New Zealand. Uh, and as I say, I'm not sorry about that. Um, you join us, not the other way around. And if that's leaders perpetrating that behavior, then you know your time is limited. I have a targeting process of finding that out and moving it out. But to be to be more frank and to be honest, you know, I think culture sits at the heart of everything we do, and it's a clear way of moving your organization forward. But it must adapt. And why do you say that you're uh, you're not sorry about calling it out? Do you still find this quite hard to do so? You know, I think there was a time, especially with leaders, especially people that you would tend to respect because of their skill and because of their time in uniform, there is this difference, uh, I call it, not pure respect, because respect is earned. Our loyalty is demanded, and it's that loyalty aspect of army especially, that we are so loyal, that we are bred to be loyal, and it's defining the difference sometimes between those terminologies. And when you know that that stuff is wrong, based on the stuff we've discussed previously in the cast, you know, if your culture is right and you understand what right looks like, it becomes so much easier to call it out. But I would agree with you. I found it hard. And then when you understand your culture so well, it's not, you know, but you do have to have that map, I call it. There's that map of right and wrong, above and below the line behaviours. Once you've done that hard work to understand that level, that continuum of what is red behavior and what is green, both as cultural and behavior, I just find it's easier to connect the dots and say, certainly below the line, time to call you out. Yeah, hey, uh, you make some really good points there, mate. And uh, and uh, I suppose, Sheridan, what we, we we catch up monthly, the five eyes, and our conversations are really rich uh, about, about these things, um, because we're a human organisation, aren't we? You know, and as we said before, you know, we're human. We make mistakes. It's um, what is that mistake, and what effect does it have on your on your workforce? Um, and is it a mistake? Um, but as uh, Moo said, it is about culture. It is about having that workplace where you are respected and trusted, and that loyalty only goes so far when you've done the wrong thing uh, or you are being a bully or you are targeting people or you're um, palming off the direction that the commander has given you at whatever level that might be and being able to give people the safe passage to be able to report that and as Moose said and have no fear about calling it out and taking action. That is really fundamental I think to all this is actually People in your units or people in our armies see action being taken. That is how you win, as I said earlier, that is how you win trust. That is how you win respect of not only our our uniform members, but society and the government. At the end of the day, um, that is where we're trying to win resources um, to make sure that we're a highly capable organisation with the best technology and um, people at the centre of it. Um, so we've got to be able to make sure that we can call it out and it 
happens in the Australian Army, but calling it out is really, really essential. And what you do with that and making sure that people understand that action has been done is really central to to that. And again, we can see that across all the forces that, you know, we all we all say the same things and live by it. So whilst we're all human and we recognise this, we really need to get the culture part right uh, and call it out if not, you know, and show them actions going forward. So thank you. How are you breaking down barriers and the stigma attached towards mental health? How does the Army strike a balance between ensuring members are adequately prepared for the demands of combat with the resilience while simultaneously looking after soldiers' well-being and ensuring sufficient support is available? Hey, this is a really wicked problem and it's another conversation that we have uh, have monthly. But it comes back to what we just spoke about, having a psychologically safe workplace for our people to come and feel safe that they can report that mental illness or whatever it might be um, without fear or favour, and that their hand will be held on that journey to uh, rehabilitation, and that at every at every turn, our welfare boards are run regularly. The support officers actually understand what their role and function is, and that they're there for that when that person needs them. Understanding from day one what those rigors are is really important for our recruit instructors and understanding and leading by example about those sort of things. But how you build on that through your um, combat behaviours, through leadership and those sort of things is really, really fundamental to it. As most people know, we're going through a Royal Commission into Defence Veteran Suicides right at the moment. We have got things wrong, absolutely. But it's about understanding why it went wrong or how, how it got so bad to make sure that it doesn't happen again is really fundamental to learning all these lessons. And as I said, it's fundamentally having empathy and understanding that individual and being able to peel back the layers of what the issue is and being able to look for those key words. Some people do it really well and others not so well, but it's making sure that you, you're inquisitive and asking the question besides besides asking you are you okay when they say they're not being prepared for that and taking it to the next step and not shying away from it yeah great answer to follow on from grant it's hard to sort of add any more great value there but you know look from a new zealand army point of view i think one of the big things is we're talking about it more than ever before you know, some people believe that it's it's grand strategies and multiple interventions, but largely as we've come to realise now, and it's hardly a complete study, but you've got to talk about it. You've got to um, get alongside people, as Grant said, be inquisitive. The old reasons for saying good morning in, in the morning was to gain that first impression of somebody, right? And all we're doing it now is a more personal approach to seeing whether people are headstrong um, and they've got the space to get to work every day. So I find more and more people are asking me as SMA, like, how are you? You know, but really, how are you, right? And like in a way that I've never really heard before. So if I'm getting it and I'm, you know, I'm mirroring that back across my army, I think there's a clear recognition that we understand, you know, it's worth. You know, I'd say that we're all affected by mental health in some way or another, whether it's clinical, down through the spectrums, all the way through to daily stress in life. 
the trick is being able to identify it and get some battle buddies in your workspace, people that you trust to, to talk about it early and where need be, get you to the right tool set. I'm not in any doubt that there aren't enough tools in our respective defence forces to deal with this. The trick is finding the information, finding what's right for that person and then supporting them through the process. And I think it's the latter part that we tend to forget about. It's sort of like a fire and forget. No, and you know you do have to hold the hand sometimes, especially young soldiers, young officers who are under tremendous amounts of stress in a very tempo and information, you know, heavy environment. Uh, lots of requirements of people, and you're trying to mix that with a busy life as well. And sure enough, the equation means you're you're stressed. So I'll finish off by saying, look, I don't think we're perfect in, in providing all the solutions. Nor do I think any one respective service should have all the solutions. This is a national problem and it's only got worse with COVID and, and the pandemic. So given that it is a, some sort of campaign all of its own, we do need to look at this from, from the highest possible level all the way down to our unit organisations. And I'll, I'll just finish by saying that I think in, in my army especially, I can see that there are clear expectations from seniors, um, subordinates, from peers about what is their requirement as soldiers to deal with this. And I see it in every level of our elevation in the ranks that there's small parts of it in there. It's certainly front of mind more than it ever was before. So yeah, there's no excuse not to know this stuff. It's just about how deeply. Yeah, And I think you. that's key that now it's at the front of everybody's mind. You know, we've come on in leaps and bounds and, you know, while we say our armies aren't perfect, I, well, actually, if we look at where we were to where we are now, we can only keep getting better as well. So it's great to see that people are taking it a lot more serious now, making a safe space for it to be talked about uh, and at least get some education out there. So thank you very much. Uh, where do you see the Australian and New Zealand army in the future and what are the challenges and opportunities in getting there? Hey, um, I'll start. I, I think um, hey, the, the Australian Army is in a good place. We've just had a huge lot of investment from our government and we've got some significant capabilities and platforms coming into the organisation and we're, we're going to grow. Our issue is recruiting. Recruiting is down. So how do we, we've now got a task force on uh, working out how we can lift our recruiting figures, and also on top of that is retaining people, which is just as important, and keeping that, that investment that you've made in, in, in our people, and especially our junior leaders, is, is fundamental to what we're doing at the moment. Giving our people those, those opportunities to develop, not through the normal career pathways, but give them other, other opportunities, and we've now got partnerships with BHP and Australian Institute of Sport and those sort of things, just giving them a, a bit of different things. We have a junior fellowship and a senior NCO fellowship. So it's, it's engaging people to keep, to keep them um, because we have, an, we have an exciting time coming up, I think, for the Australian Army. As I said, significant change, you know, been in the, in my, Army for 42 years now, and the last five years, probably four years, we have seen significant change. Um, but at the heart of it is people. You can have all the technology you like and all the capabilities, but at the heart of it is our people. Keeping recruiting and keeping our people, I think, is our 
our two biggest challenges at the moment, Sheridan? Yeah, look, gun answer by Grant, always a hard one to follow. Look, I think there are real challenges uh, right now in the world, and that has clearly um, passed its way across all government agencies. And, and I think we're all in, in, a, in a sort of position where you're pivoting your organisation to be relevant in this, this environment. So I think first and foremost, uh, you need to be what your government and your people need your land combat force to be. And we're always looking at about what that is. Uh, I tend to call it the needed and the niche. You know, you must be what our people want and what you need to be in the region you operate. Um, and then it's finding out what you do best or what only you can do. And in the New Zealand Army, when you are a finite resource, uh, you really have to nug it down and find out where you best add value. You know, and our aspirations are along that same. You go before about one force, or we call the force for New Zealand. And so that's our focus is to be a strategically trusted combat organisation that is ready and resilient for all the modern challenges that, that we're going to face. The challenge therefore becomes, given that you know, strategic context of change and you know, relative tempo of the world is, you know, how do you sustain your workforce? And I would say the biggest challenge for, for my army is recruitment, training pipelines, trying to reduce that attrition that draw them away to all these wonderful jobs and train real professionals who are going to stay and use this as their vocation uh, for a better part of their life. Uh, right now, for me, it's, it's my, my general would say it's regeneration of the force after two years of COVID lockdowns and disruption. That, that is the immediate challenge. In terms of opportunity, I tend to find that now Five Eyes Chats or you know, ABCA Chats, this platform, people platform comment comes out a lot, right? I know Gavin Payton talked about it. I think I stole it from him. But in New Zealand, sort of people are certainly our platform, right? And we say that our major leverage point is the quality of our people. And I do think that's the opportunity going forward beyond 22 and into 25, finding great people to carry on this legacy of, of land army, you know, whatever shape it becomes. You know, I think there are good people out there. They're just as good as we were uh, 30 years ago and 40 years ago. Um, in many ways, they bring just new opportunity uh, to the role. So there it is. Find good people, match them with great technology and a mission and let them go. Thank you both so much for your honest answers uh, and really thought provoking answers as well. Really appreciate that. Uh, we're just going to move on to some quick fire questions, uh, literally just some short answers. So the best leader you have ever worked with. Hey, uh, I'll, I'll go first. And, uh, and it is my current boss. And I don't say it because he's my current boss. Uh, I, I think General Burr has significantly moved our army forward through a logical framework of making sure that we are the best army that we can be. Uh, and he encourages and challenges our, our people to be part of the conversation. I better give you my one then. <laughs> okay. So Major Sam Hunter, former mentor, certainly a soft <laughs> maven. Um, yeah, he was my second RSM in, my, in, in Special Forces and he won't like me saying it. Great leader. I can see the passion from both of you. You smile while you give your answers. It's so good to see. Uh, so who's your most inspirational non-military leader? Richie McCall. <laughs> I think I heard Gavin saying all black, so I'm not trying to copy, but you know, I've watched Richie McCaw. By age 41, he's done everything that I think a leader in the world wants to. He leads at the highest level. He leads change and influence uh, of a new generation, and he leaves a legacy. Well done. Yeah. Hey, um, 
you're going to have to Google this bloke uh, unless you follow Aussie rules. So um, a bloke by the name of Kevin Sheedy, he was a uh, inspirational average footballer, but he became one of the most successful AFL coaches we we have had, and he coached my my team. But he thought outside the box. He he really, in my view, really modernised the game of Australian rules football. Uh, and he challenged the uh, framework and the the hierarchy of the organisation to be smarter and be more inclusive as a, an organisation. Thank you so much. And your most enjoyable leadership position? Gordon Sarr, Major on Operations. I'd love to say patrol at that young level, but really it's about leadership. Uh, challenges and doing right by your people. Squadron Sergeant Major. Hey, uh, I don't want you to copycat, but when I joined the Army and uh, after I realised what I was all about, I just wanted to be the CSM of Charlie Company in three hour hour and I achieved that and every job after that has been a, a blessing and I think, I've got to say it now, this is the best job in the world. Perfect, thank you. And what keeps you awake at night as the Army Sergeant Major? Uh, I think I raised it in challenges. Uh, you know, my what keeps me awake at night is being able to transition our army uh, to a new generation cleanly and better than it was before. I think legacy is always the biggest challenge. It doesn't keep me asleep in a bad way. I just want to make sure in my time alongside my general that we do the best we can to make it shaped and future-proofed for a transformation that, that it earns. Lots of things keep me awake at night, but I think... The, the heart of it is our people, making sure that we, as as Moo just said, that we are leaving our organisation set for success um, and making sure that our leaders are ready for that challenge. You know, the world is changing. The world is more complex. It's more challenging. So for our leaders, we just need to make sure that we're investing in them to make sure that they can get after whatever business our our government's need. But, you know, we've got a few things going on over here in, in the Australian Army at the moment with the inquiries and uh, and Royal Commissions, that sort of stuff. So it's keeping our people focused on what's important and what's not important is the stuff in the, in the media and those sort of things at the moment. It's about them coming to work and that their people, they're looking after their people and that they can be successful in whatever that we have of them. Thank you. And I've got one final question for you both. With the benefit of hindsight, what would you tell yourself as a young junior NCO about leadership? Oh, for me, it would be, hey, young Brad McFarlane, know yourself better. Know that you do have weaknesses and that you need to challenge yourself. Go and, go and better yourself every day because it's not up the army to do that for you. And Make sure that you're taking everybody in your section, in this case, uh, on that journey with you. Being out in front of 100 metres is not how you are a successful young corporal. Yeah, look, I, I don't think I'd pass Lance Corporal, so it's a tough question. <laughs> look, uh, three, three uh, little points. Um, to be a better leader, what would I tell myself? I'd say have a plan, even, even if it's a small one. I'd say uh, pick a mentor, someone you trust and won't lie to you. And third, um, educate, educate, and educate. I think um, the ability to be a great leader is to lifelong learn. 
And as long as you're reading, developing, listening and watching other good leaders or who you perceive to be a good leader, it's bound to rub off. Uh, and I think those perspectives are from people that have gone before us, um, people in history, even if it's thousands of years old, really comes into play. It just gives you a greater perspective and greater tools. Thank you so much. I love that you bring up mentoring there as well, because we're all very good at looking for inspirational leaders, and we can uh, we can certainly name a few. But then when you need that mentor, it's good that you bring that up as key. I would like to just thank you both for today. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I know that you're incredibly busy people. So again, thank you very much. I think we all would agree. A fantastic, fascinating interview, highlighting similarities in all three armies, leadership thinking. I was delighted to hear the importance they both placed on self-awareness, highlighting that young leaders often experience a tension between identity and reputation as they develop. And it is only with time that leaders really learn to know themselves and to be comfortable with who they really are. As we know from our own army's leadership doctrine, leaders require the self-awareness to understand their own strengths, weaknesses, and motivations. This setting the foundations to lead others. As you would expect from two strong and distinct cultures, they both highlighted the importance their armies place on culture and highlighted the symbolic relationship it has with leadership. They drew out the importance of change culture, psychological safety, and the importance of having shared values when operating with multinational partners. Again, this chimes with our leadership doctrine, which highlights a leader must first understand the culture and climate in which they are operating and how this shapes their own beliefs, values, and behaviors, as well as those they are leading or in this case, working alongside as multinational partners, as our three nations have historically done and will continue to do, an incredibly insight from two of our closest allies, senior soldiers. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website. And of course, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.